Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The show is about to begin. Two little mice fell into a bucket of cream. The first mouse quickly gave up and drowned. The second mouse wouldn't quit. He struggled so hard that eventually he turned that cream into butter and crawled out. Gentlemen, as of this moment, I am that second mouse. in a flick this is where we review the good the bad and the absurd tonight's episode catch me if you can beware spoilers coming to you from my basement as always my name is don and to my right we have our comic book guy john would you like to hear me tell a joke yeah i'd like to hear you tell a joke knock knock who's there go fuck yourself and to my left, we have the Professor Ken. My name is Mr. Abignail. That's Abignail. Not Abignoli, not Abignaley, Abignail. Now, somebody please tell me where you left off in your textbooks. Well done, sir. How are you guys doing tonight? Doing good. Groovy. Groovy. All right. Tonight, we are talking about the 2002 Catch Me If You Can, directed by Steven Spielberg. It stars Leonardo DiCaprio. Tom Hanks, Christopher Walken, and blah, blah, blah. We'll get into that in a bit. This is our second round of Spielberg movies uh, to come out of the helmet. And we just got done doing Raiders of the Lost Ark, which was Spielberg. And then we jumped on to The Wolf of Wall Street, which was Leo. And now we have combined the two. And we're talking about Catch Me If You Can. With Jack Dawson. You know, it's funny that you say that because in this point in Leo's career, to me, he still was Jack Dawson. He was mm-hmm. the uh, Jack Dawson con man in this one. Yeah, I totally, when, when you said it last week that you felt like Leonardo up until Wolf of Wall Street kept playing the same Titanic role, watching this movie, I kept feeling like I was watching Jack. I thought of Jack too, like the, the con man Jack, like I said. And really, after Titanic, all he does is that Man in the Iron Mask, a movie called Celebrity, which I think it was just a cameo, The Beach, which I think tanked. And then, uh, oddly enough, he does Gangs of New York and then Catch Me If You Can. So yeah, at this point in his career, I'm totally Jack Dawson, and that's where that comes from, and on and on and on. And after we watched The Wolf of Wall Street last week, I was like, oh, okay, let's eat. Uh, look at him in a different light and i gotta say yeah no he's still jack from titanic Mm -hmm. he's con man jack there you go it's been a long time since i'd seen titanic so that image is not as fresh or crisp if you will in my mind well don watches the titanic like all the time just sitting in here crying tears coming down his face listeners you don't know it but there's a couple of uh, titanic leonardo dicaprio posters in the basement and what's your point? Just commenting. All right, so catch me if you can. What'd you think? Really enjoyable watch. Uh, I I find this movie to be a, a, a solid Spielberg movie. Uh, when was the last time you watched it? Uh, it had been several years. Uh, I remembered a lot of it, but not all of it for sure. Yeah. So it's 
I'll bet you it's hmm, 10 years. Oh, okay. Okay. What about you? Have you ever seen it? I have seen it before. I can't remember if I've seen it once or twice. It's been many, many years. In fact, I forgot how the order of the movie is presented. I forgot that it started out with him getting arrested. So I, you know, didn't remember all that. I also didn't, I remembered I liked the storyline. I didn't remember how slow the movie could be in certain parts. Yeah, it definitely has uh, moments where it, it kind of slows down. And uh, I, it had been at least 10, 10 years for me as well. So uh, yeah, going back to it, it, it's solid Spielberg. I mean, Spielberg is Spielberg. All right, so we've seen two Leo movies. Do you have a movie that you think of First, as a Leo movie. Out of the two we've watched, or no, just in general? just in general. What's a Leo movie? Well, I think Inception's a Leo movie. I think that Wolf of Wall Street's a Leo movie. Uh, the Departed, yeah. even though it's a very big cast with mm-hmm. The Departed, it's still, you mm-hmm. know, a Leo movie. If I had to picture a Leo movie right in my head, my brain goes straight to Titanic. Of course it does. Now who has the posters, Dick? Just... Listeners, you just heard it all come full circle. He was projecting it out on me when deep down inside him and Julie sit and watch Titanic and cry into each other's arms, which, brother, I think that is beautiful. Julie has never seen Titanic. Again, that doesn't surprise me in the least. (laughs) She refuses to watch that movie. Well, she is smarter than I. My uh, Leo movies, uh, I first go to Inception, and then right after that I go to Departed. I guess we should get back to Catch Me If You Can. Wait, what were oh, we here to talk about? Yeah, is that the movie we were supposed to watch? I, oh, I, shit. I, I watched the wrong one. I thought I was supposed to watch Super 8. Did yes, you, yes, you were. Did you, you would enjoy that movie a lot. I watched it. Just, Bam, take that, professor. two days ago. No shit. I, I watched Super 8. I even texted Don to say, you know what I'm watching? Super, Super 8. 8. And guess what? Guess what? Guess what he said about it? It was predictable. I said it was a little predictable, but I liked the storyline and it felt like a old school creature feature. And I, I love the aspect of the movie inside a movie. I said, otherwise, a little predictable and a little far-fetched. But otherwise, if you're going for that aspect of an old school creature feature, it hit its mark. Did, did you just say far-fetched and alien in the same sentence? Well, far-fetched in that, like I said, you know, we're here to talk about catching me if you can. But in Super 8, the kids see the creature chewing on somebody's leg. And, oh, no, they're not even scared of it anymore. I wouldn't call that far-fetched. I would call that good storytelling. I'm just thinking, yeah, E.T., in the movie E.T., if they saw the little extraterrestrial guy chewing on somebody's leg, I don't think they would try to help it go home. E.T. was three feet tall. So that's not scary. This thing in Super 8 was fucking gigantic. What are you going to do? Yeah, but when you made E.T. happy, you know, he extended. Well, when you make a lot of things happy, they extend. Speaking of E.T., it was directed by... Steven Spielberg. Which is the director of... Catch Me If You Can. Okay, so Catch Me If You Can was released on December 25th, 2002. It was directed by Sir Steven Spielberg. Screenplay by Jeff Nathanson, based on the book Catch Me If You Can by Frank Abagnale Jr. and Stan Redding. Music by the one, the only John Williams. And it stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Tom Hanks, Christopher Walken, Martin Sheen, and Natalie Bay. Now, one thing that was really surprising to me is I didn't realize that John Williams did the music for this. Oh, for fuck's sakes, did we not just talk about Raiders of Lost Ark and Steven Spielberg and how John Williams always scores Steven Spielberg's movies? 
I don't listen to our shows. I was, you motherfucker. You were sitting here. Wait, what? When we huh? said that. I was on that episode? <laughs> oh, one's got to wonder. You know. Yes, maybe, John. Maybe he was on the lemons. Oh, that could be. That's well, possible. This movie was made for $52 million, and it brought in $352 million. This movie was nominated for two Academy Awards, Best Supporting Actor and Best Original Score. So Christopher Walken and and uh, John Williams were nominated again. But neither of them won, right? Neither of them won. Ah, oh, fucking travesty. Fucking travesty. Um, let's talk about this cast a little bit. Uh, what you guys think? We, we already kind of touched on Leo. Uh, Tom Hanks, what do you think? I thought Tom Hanks was phenomenal in this movie. In fact, I guess when uh, they were looking to cast this movie, Spielberg was apprehensive about reproaching Tom Hanks. Uh, he felt Tom Hanks is not going to take a supporting role in a movie. He's, he's a star in a movie. And it, I think, Professor, you can maybe can correct me if I'm wrong. Tom Hanks' response was, if it's a good movie, it's a good movie, and I'm going to do it. Yeah. Yeah, that was how he felt about it. Now, one interesting thing, I guess they've been trying to make this movie since like around 1981, um, and it's taken a long time for them to actually get uh, someone to back the movie. Do you know who the original person is that they wanted to play, uh, to play uh, Frank Jr.? Meg, uh, Maggie would love this. Oh, is it Johnny Depp? No. Yeah. Well, that was for the current version, but back in 1981 when they were trying to do it, oh. Dustin Hoffman. In 81? When in did Tootsie 81. come out? Isn't he kind of old to be Frank Abagnale? Yeah. That might have been why they're having troubles getting the backing. Oh, maybe. Maybe. Um, yeah, 2002, uh, Tom Hanks is in Catch Me If You Can. And what else is he in? Castaway. No. It's one, uh, it's one of your uh, favorite movies or a movie that you really like. Uh, I'm sorry. Are we talking about Tom Hanks? Yes. Okay, so for me, there's a couple of movies that I always think about. When I when I think of Tom Hanks, one movie I always think about is Toy Story. I go to that, and the other one, Saving Private Ryan. Those are my two big Tom Hanks movies. Okay, neither of them were released in 2002. The Road to Perdition. He was also in that same year as Catch Me If You Can. Yes. Right. Yeah, excellent movie. Yeah, yeah. Sam Mendes, I believe. Sam Mendes, yeah. correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Christopher Walken plays uh, Leo's dad fantastic he he's so enjoyable to what he's he's so enjoyable to watch on screen he is a guy who every movie he's in he pretty much does play the same character but he's just so amazing at it you just love him in everything he's in so i was curious to find out what what's what are your tom hanks movies that you think of first i mean he's had a boatload of them uh i think i immediately go to gump because that's where he won his that's, first oscar Right? No, uh, or did he no, did he went no. for Philadelphia? Philadelphia first? and then Gump. Right. So he goes back to back with Oscars, and that's and that's kind of the era of Hanks. I think of uh, Toy Story, naturally, uh, anything yeah. really. Uh, you haven't said my favorite yet. Apollo thirteen. No. Splash. <laughs> I, I I got you last time with that too. <laughs> I would consider gump but i think above gump the green mile that is one of my favorite roles that that tom hanks has been in fucking solid fucking solid. Yeah. right i gotta say for me tom hanks continues to uh he casts a spell over me every time i see him i never see tom hanks and i've seen a lot of his movies i totally buy his his uh character that he puts up on the screen for whatever reason 
I just never, ever think Tom Hanks or see Tom Hanks. I only see his character. Before we kind of get into the plot of this movie, something I, I read about that I thought was interesting, Frank Abagnale Jr. wrote the, basically, he co-wrote the book with Stan Redding. You already mentioned that. Uh, in an interview, someone asked Frank, how much of the book is exaggerated? How much of the book is made up? Uh, turns out he only ever met with Stan four times. And I guess that's where Stan got all the information to actually help write this book. As Frank put it, yes, some things may be exaggerated, but of course they had to tell a story that people would be interested in. Uh, he says 80% of the story is true. There's a good 20% that was extremely exaggerated. Oh, sure. And we kind of touched on this last week when we talked about The Wolf of Wall Street. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, this is the second week in a row we're doing movies based on people. Yeah, you, 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 have, to, you have to go into it knowing that nothing is ever going to be 100% mm -hmm. Uh, accurate. Well, one thing I was going to point out when I bring that up is that on our website, when I throw up all the details from our show notes and the articles about the movie, uh, I'm going to put in there a comparison of real life versus the book versus the movie in case anybody's interested in knowing a little more detail of what the differences are between the three. So if you go to three guys at a flick.com, you can check that out when this is posted. Right on, right on. Sounds good. One thing I want to throw out before we start that there are a couple of interesting little tidbits that were not included in the movie. The first thing that I think that he really got his feet wet with was he was living on his own. He was pretty much living on the streets when he was 16 years old. And to get cash, he came up with this idea of the nightly bank deposit boxes that people would drop their, their, their monies off with. He went, to a, he went to a thrift store and he got a costume of, of a, like a police or a security person. And then he put a sign on the uh, night drop box that said, out of service, place deposits with security guard on duty. And so many people were handing him their deposits and he just took their cash. Yeah, what a little shit. What a little shit, yeah. yeah. Uh, another thing was that he had... Uh, a semester where he taught at Brigham Young University as an assistant, uh, a teaching assistant. And it was uh, just something that he felt like doing. He also had a more exaggerated end of his career, if you will. When he was escaping after the airplane, he didn't go to his, he didn't go to his mother's place. Instead, he ends up at the Canadian border, uh, he ends up a few days later arrested by the Canadian Mounties at the Montreal airport where he's about to aboard a plane to Brazil. While awaiting trial, he has, uh, he's in a, in a detention center and he is mistaken to be an undercover prison inspector. And he, and he tricks them to let him out where he ha has a girlfriend waiting for him and they drive off. And then by mere chance two weeks later he happens to get ultimately arrested by two new york city officers so he had a really really colorful first few years of his life yeah and he did not have any contact with his parents yeah that's the biggest change i think from the book to the movie or from real life book to the movie is the movie which spielberg really wanted to play on the aspect of family and his family connection and his trying to make his dad proud and all of that. In real life, when he ran away, he never saw his parents again. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. So Ever it, again. 
ever again because his father oh, wow. died by the time he returned. Oh, wow. Now the uh, the real reason why he ran away in the movie it was because of the divorce. In the the real reason was he got basically his dad had given him a gas credit card. He had run up a lot of bills on it and done a lot of you know bad things with his credit card and conning people things like that. That his parents wanted to put him into a military school or excuse me a reform school. And instead of going to the reform school, he ran away and was on his own. So there you have it. All right. So let's dig into the movie. In 1963, teenager Frank Abagnale lives in New Rochelle, New York with his father, Frank Sr. and his French mother, Paula. When Frank Sr. encounters tax problems with the IRS, the family is forced to move from their large home to a small apartment. Meanwhile, Frank transfers to a public school and gets into trouble where he poses as a substitute French teacher on his first day there shortly thereafter frank discovers that his mother is having an affair with his father's friend jack barnes when his parents divorce frank runs away needing money he turns to confidence scams to survive and his cons grow bolder he impersonates an airline pilot and forges pan am payroll checks soon his forgeries are worth millions of dollars news of the crimes reach the fbi and agent carl hanratty begins tracking frank Carl finds Frank at a hotel, but Frank cons Carl into believing he is a Secret Service agent, Barry Allen. He escapes before Carl realizes that he was fooled. I have to say, I first of all, if you we have to talk about the opening, the actual where they show the credits in the beginning. Uh, are you familiar with the artist Saul Bass? Uh, I'm a graphic designer by day. That's what I do for a living. Uh, one of the, my favorite uh, modern artist graphic designers is a man named Saul Bass. That was his style of how they set it up. It's kind of a, uh, like an ink print style. Um, if you go out and search for Saul Bass and see some of the movie posters he created, he did a lot for Hitchcock, things like that. And a lot of people will imitate his style in new movie posters. Yeah. Um, they did a fantastic job at the opening you know, capturing that Saul Bass look and feel. The credits look great, and they were moving very uh, nicely, uh, real nice. But they were accompanied by a wonderful score. By who? Who did the score? I can't remember. Yeah, it fucking figures you can't fucking remember. Um, that that John Williams guy, was this his first, you know, shot at making music? It might be, but um, yeah, I don't even know why I play along with him. Yeah, it just drives me nuts up the fucking wall. So we open up with Frank on the To Tell the Truth game show, right? And that's kind of a good setup to tell us, you know, what we're about to what we're, what we're about to deal Which with. Which apparently really happened. Frank Jr. did go on to tell the truth. Yeah. You can look it up on YouTube. Yeah, that's what I heard. We meet Carl. Carl is picking up Frank. Oh, because after the uh, game show, we cut to, I guess, present day, if mm-hmm. you will. Yep. Yeah. And uh, Leo's been in a French prison for however long. Yeah, and he's just beat the shit. I mean, he's just sick as a dog. And then we're told it's six years earlier. Which the timing of this movie didn't make much sense to me because did the movie take place over six years or did it take place over two or three years? I think it was like three years. That's what I thought. And it seemed like they jumped from 1963 to 1969. Okay, but he's also put in some some jail time and prison time yeah but they they refer to him as you know he's still a kid by the time hanks picks him up in oh, the no, opening of the film he's not a teenager anymore he's right. got to be at least 20 that's where i had troubles following the movie because it seemed like you know he talks about he left home around 16 17 and by the end of the movie it seemed like he was only 19 years old he wasn't wasn't even 21 yet he was 19 or 20 so i 
I was having troubles following that. Yeah. Yeah. I think he was in his 20s by the end mm-hmm. of the film, for sure. Um, and then we get a little uh, glimpse into Frank's life. We meet mom and dad and, you know, Christopher Walken uh, plays that role wonderfully. I like when him and the mom are dancing and then he dips her at the very end and how, you know, matter of fact he is. And I love the relationship between uh, uh, Walken and uh, Leo's character. Um, I think that father and son relationship, uh, it was strong in the movie. I, he wanted us to believe it was strong. And, you know, I just, I, I really bought it. So after we meet uh, the parents and get introduced to his kind of daily routine, we find out that uh, Frank Sr. is in trouble with the IRS and they have to move. And then dad introduces him to, you know, uh, he gets that, he gets that uh, suit for him. Right. Right, right, right. And he kind of shows uh, what a natural salesman that Frank Sr. is, you know, mm-hmm. uh, conning the lady to give Frank a suit. I feel like we got set up two things here. One, we set up that Frank Sr. and Frank Jr. have kind of, you know, a bias against the government because of Frank Sr. being attacked and that the IRS keeps coming after him. So already they hate the man. They hate the government. And then, of course, as you just put it, Frank Jr. is introduced to the con game. Yes, the art of the con. And then they downsize, and then from there, then we cut to him going to school, and it's his first day of school. I yeah. loved this part. Oh, I, it was a great scene. I kept thinking, God, I wish I had done something like that. I mean, just the confidence this guy has, right, and the courage. And I, I think what kind of gives it away or, or even helps it is that he's wearing the uniform from his old school, so it, he doesn't really feel... He's not dressed like all the other kids. And then someone even mentions to him in the hallway, he looks like a teacher or something like that. Yes, uh, the bully. Oh, is that who When was? he goes, what are you selling encyclopedias? Yeah. Wait, what are you selling encyclopedias? He even looks like a substitute teacher. Right. And so that gives him the idea and, you know, He's got great that scene. Moxie. And we are now introduced to what ends up propelling this character, Frank, for his entire young adult life, which is he has this brazen attitude with no regard to the consequences or the repercussions of what could be happening. And because of this, he goes on to do insane things without thinking through at all. What happens if? Yeah. And he and Frank, uh, real life Frank, said that if he would have uh, tried to do half of this stuff, no, not even half hardly any of it if he was like 21 22 23 years old because no common sense kicks in this guy's just a teenager and with that it's like what the heck yeah yeah and you know what my favorite part of the scene is is after uh the principal talks to the parents and they're walking out the look that christopher walken gives leo that uh, the father giving the son the look, and then he kind of gives him a little smirk like, yeah, that's my boy. It's <laughs> that, a great scene. Mom is bribing him to keep his mouth shut about what he might be thinking is happening. Yeah, because he comes home and finds uh, uh, James Brolin's character, uh, his buddy Frank from, Sr.'s friend from the Rotary Club. The Rotary Club. Uh, he's he's stooping uh, Mrs. Abignale. And yeah, she, uh, she tries to bribe him and, you know, he sees what's going on. And then uh, he's trying to scam some checks and these checks that he's trying to uh, get uh, some cash with, he sees the flight, uh, the, the flight uniform in the window and that gives him his first big epiphany 
of having the opportunity to have his checks be taken seriously. Yeah. 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 Back then, you know, I was talking with uh, Julie's mom. Back then, pilots were revered. Oh, sure. They were considered, you know, like military. They were top brass, you know, the most honorable people. And Frank even notices as, you know, a pilot's walking through, I think, a hotel. Yeah, they're getting out of a hotel. It's a captain yeah. and some flight attendants, and everybody's like, ooh. Yeah, and everybody's treating them like, you know, they're just celebrities, you know, asking for their, this pilot's autograph and everything. And it inspires them of, you know, the, the whole confidence game that he can cash these checks if they have that type of confidence in him. Yeah. And so what does he do? He goes and buys some toy Pan Am planes and takes the logo and creates checks. It's so funny when you have that first airplane in the bathtub, and then after you see the success of that one, then the bathtub is full of airplanes. Which I, which I love that moment because it's, to me it felt like such a Spielberg moment, right? The way he cut that together and, and how it all came together. Because after you're right, after it works, when we cut back and they're all in there, you just it's it's a great moment. And in this same time, we also have a very very clever uh, data. A gathering idea where he's doing a school interview yep. yep very very clever yeah he he uh he definitely worked it that's for fucking sure right after this though we're introduced to uh tom hanks character han ratty kind of in the storyline not just on the plane but actually in the storyline of being an investigator one of the things i thought was interesting was back when frank jr was originally you know writing this book he named that character Sean O'Reilly. And in the movie, he's named Carl Hanratty. The reason for this was because um, the actual agent was still an FBI agent, and he didn't want to out him by his real name. It wasn't until after he retired that it revealed the real name was Joseph Shea. Oh, really? So that was the name of the actual agent um, that was pursuing him all that time. Yeah. And so now we have uh, the impression that perhaps Hanratty might be onto a trail that Frank is starting to leave behind, that he, is, he has gotten the curiosity up of the FBI with his check fraud that he has just started to run rampant with. Right. So Hanratty tracks him down to uh, Hollywood and he goes into uh, the, 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 the front desk clerk guy. Right. And let me know, well, you just want to go. Oh, that's right, because he's investigating a check, and then he learns that the the guy's still, or Leo's still there. And he goes up in there, and it was so smart of Frank to, when he comes out of the bathroom and he sees Hanratty there, he was uh, posed and calm, and he knew exactly what to do. And I thought that was a fucking brilliant scene, too, because Tom Hanks doesn't believe him, but he turns him... And then it fucking works out. And and what was a fatal flaw for for uh, Hanratty in this is when he shows he has his gun out and his hand is trembling just a little bit, but he has his he has his his credentials out, but they're facing him. Oh, he's showing the wrong side. I had no idea. Yeah, so calm, cool, collected comes out. Barry Allen, Secret Service. Oh, my God, that was so good. And he goes, you think the FBI are the only ones tracking this guy? I mean, he just, he knew what to say. And it, it, 
And it worked out for him because he knew that he just uh, saw the two people that he knew in the building. He mm-hmm. knew that they were going to be walking outside, and it just works perfectly. Now, when he introduced himself as Barry Allen, did the comic book nerd in you come out, and it you immediately knew who he was? Yeah. I mean, who he's I knew referencing? Who, yeah, I knew who he was refer- uh, referencing the Flash, which, you know, he's got to make a quick getaway. Yeah. Uh, one interesting thing I read about this story is although a lot of the things that happen in this movie happen in a different order in real life, something like this actually did happen that he was cornered by agents and he did flash his wallet, but he flashed it so fast they couldn't see anything in the, the wallet. But just the fact that he did the action of flashing his wallet, um, they assumed he was an agent and he just walked out the door. Yeah. And as he's walking out the door here, uh, Hanratty says, hey, you forgot your wallet. And I love what uh, Frank says to him. He says, you know what? I trust you. Keep it. I'll be right back. That's such a great thing to say. And then and then, uh, Hanratty can't fucking shake that feeling. And so he checks the wallet and finds out he's been duped. It makes me think the fact that Frank Jr. had a wallet in there with just a bunch of crap in there, that he had this prepared, that this was a plan of his, uh, that it wasn't spontaneous. Oh, uh, no, I don't think uh, he had a plan to impersonate police. I think he has a getaway plan. Yeah. And I think that getaway plan or the situation is going to dictate what he needs to do. Uh, yeah, to get away because the wallet is full of labels off of bottles and, and oh right. that's a good point I, you know i don't think i clicked that that he did remove a lot of labels from everything right and that's what it was for okay so that makes sense yeah, he just he was just always ready he always had an exit strategy frank begins to impersonate a doctor as dr frank connors he falls in love with brenda a naive young hospital worker Frank asks Brenda's attorney father for permission to marry her and also wants his help with arranging to take the Louisiana State Bar exam. Frank takes the exam and passes. Carl tracks Frank to his and Brenda's engagement party, but Frank escapes through the bedroom window. Before leaving the party, Frank asks Brenda to meet him at the Miami International Airport in two days. At the airport, Frank sees Brenda, but also spots plainclothes agents and realizes she has given him up. Frank leaves Brenda and drives away. Frank then reassumes his identity as a Pan Am pilot and stages a false recruiting drive for stewardesses at a local college. He recruits eight women as stewardesses, conceals himself from Carl and the other agents walking through the Miami airport with the stewardesses, and escapes on a flight to Madrid, Spain. In 1967, Carl tracks down Frank in his mother's hometown in France. Frank is incarcerated in a French prison in France where he almost dies due to its poor conditions. Carl takes Frank on a flight back to the United States. As they make their approach, Carl informs Frank that his father has died. Grief-stricken, Frank escapes from the plane and reaches the house of his now remarried mother who has a daughter. Frank surrenders to Carl and spends 12 years in a maximum security prison. Now, here's where the second reference to uh, comic book nerds kind of got this. Did you catch the name Frank Connors? What that is in reference to? No. Connors, Dr. Connors, is the lizard in Spider-Man. So he was getting a lot of his names from the comic book characters. Interesting. Which also emphasizes the point of his young age. And then we begin with the Christmas phone calls, which I guess didn't actually take place. I thought it was a nice little touch. And if it really happened, awesome. If not, you know, 
awesome as well. Yeah, he calls uh, Carl, who's working on Christmas Eve, and they have a nice little chat for a second. And I love the way Hanks talks to him, right? You know, you know you're going to get caught. There's, there's only one way this ends, you know? And he goes, well, you could stop chasing me. And, you know, Carl being the forever uh, FBI agent, the forever good guy, I, you know I can't stop, right? It's my job. It's my job. So you could tell that Frank Jr. was lonely and needed somebody to talk to. And Carl was just pissed. Yeah. Just pissed that he, you know, got one pulled over on him and he was going to catch this guy. Yeah. And you know what I love about that conversation as well is uh, Frank tells him where he's at and he says, come and get me, you know, and he was being honest because when Frank leaves the room, it's the same room number that he gave yep. uh, Carl. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, know. it seemed like every one of their conversations whether I don't know if it was on purpose or accidental, he let some important information fly, almost like he wanted to get caught. He wanted to stop. And they kind of brings it up later on in the movie, you know, asking his dad, tell me to stop. Yeah, he says, just ask me to stop. Just ask me to stop. And so it's almost he like he wanted an excuse to just stop. Sure. Well, ultimately, that's what ends up happening to Frank. He, he grows a conscience and he feels guilty for what he's doing. And in real life, that was eventually what made him slow down was the fact that he knew that he was being deceitful and hurting people. It's one thing to have somebody uh, hurt your feelings and, and and, and lying to you if you don't know them. But when you have relationships with people and you have a secret and then it comes out, people are seriously scarred by that. You hurt me. You know, they are, they are personally, morally offended if you have a relationship with them and they find out that there's a big lie. And I think that that being the case, eventually it just wears Frank down and he doesn't want to continue this kind of a life where he's being so deceitful. Sure. The, the real Frank Jr. claims that he never took advantage of regular people. Now, a lot of people have come forward to say that that's not true. He did, especially early on, do a lot of scams that you know cost money to real people. He said only his, vic- or his victims were only ever big corporations. Um, and so this is the part where we get to the movie that I kind of felt uh, was a wee bit long, uh, was this whole kind of, uh, I'm going to be a doctor and then a lawyer. Uh, he's sitting at home watching TV and he sees uh, the medical show. So he goes in and then this is where he meets a young Amy Adams. Yeah. Do you concur? Oh, that, that, that's a funny scene. I'm, I'm, I'll give you that. Right. Um, What'd you think of Amy Adams introduction? You know, she's just getting chewed out by the doctor. She's all in tears. She looks like she's about 15 years old. I know totally. And then he just kind of walks up all suave and, you know, smooth like, and he's telling her, stop crying, stop crying. Uh, I thought she was fine. I thought she did a great job. Uh, her braces really annoyed me, but you know, I'm a dick. So there's that. I guess there's the scene where he is kissing, uh, was her name Brenda? What was her name? Amy Adams, Brenda, yeah. Brenda. He's kissing her. uh, Spielberg's direction to Amy Adams about that first kiss where she's just kind of all over him was, imagine you're starving and he's a cheeseburger. Oh, that's funny. Um, And right before he became a doctor, we get to see just how well Frank is actually doing in life because he's got those fancy digs, fancy duds that he's wearing. You know, all that at lavish equipment. Yeah, and, and he's and he's held up in uh, Atlanta. He made uh, he was living in Atlanta, Georgia. And in the meantime, uh, Carl goes see uh, goes to see 
Frank Sr. And, you know, Frank Sr. being the dad, I'm not going to give up my son ever. And then he finds uh, a, a letter on uh, Frank Sr.'s table, and it says Atlanta, Georgia. And so that's how Hanratty uh, starts to follow the, or really get on the scent of uh, Frank Jr. Before this takes place, and, and I missed it in the movie, and I thought about rewinding it, how did he track it down to being Frank Abigail? How did he, where was that connection that he made? His mother? The well, yearbook? He, but how did he get to his mother? Like, how did he figure that out? Like, well, to go see them. So, so the uh, he realizes that he's a kid when he, when the flash connection is made. Once the flash connection is made, then he's starting to go look for uh, school dropouts in that New York area. That's what I was wondering. And so then from there, he started sniffing around, and he had a pretty good idea what he was looking for, and eventually that got him to a short list of people, and it was like eight or... T- no, it was a small list of people, and right. they all split up, and they all went and checked them out, and then he happened, and then and then Carl gets to uh, gets to the mother's house. That's what I, you know, I saw and, him get to the mother's house and find the yearbook. Right. But I wasn't sure how. You know, I didn't catch that dropout thing, so that was a good point. Well, could I just write a check? <laughs> uh, One point five million dollars. That was a horrible, horrible. Don't ever let me do that again. <laughs> you guys fucking kill me. You want me to go Don't back to doing me. voices? <clears throat> yeah, would you, buddy? Uh, that sounds absolutely horrendous. And then, and then from there, then uh, then he goes on to become the doctor, and uh, he does have a, a serious, uh, a serious falling out with himself. He's he's largely an administrator, pushing paperwork. But then he does have an actual incident where a, a nurse comes to him, and he has to go address this baby who is turning blue, a blue baby. Yeah, and so freaked him out that he i can't do this anymore right i mean you know puddle jump in from uh airlines you know get, uh, ha- uh, hitching a ride not really actually having to fly yeah, the plane yeah he never- okay so be it right a lawyer you know you're dealing with you know, law and uh, people's lives i suppose in a way but a fucking doctor that shit could go sideways real quick i would never ever even think about Pretending to be a doctor. Yeah, because originally... Although he, I do play one on TV. He was supposed to just be a supervisor and supervise everything. Supervise the interns. But, yeah. the, but the other doctors and staff liked him so much that when the director of the hospital like left the hospital, they all like voted him in as the temporary director of the hospital. And so that's why he started getting pulled into more medical things. Well, that's fucking insane. I wouldn't yeah. fucking do it. Now... We get to the part where he becomes a lawyer and he takes the bar exam. Now, it's a constant thing with Hanratty asking him, how did you pass the bar? How did you do it? How did you cheat it? Uh, I read up on it and actually how he did pass the bar exam. He took the exam three times. The first two times he failed it. But I guess what they do in Louisiana, I don't know if it's with everywhere else that they do these, these exams, they send you back the exam when you finished it when you with the mar the wrong answers marked. So all he had to do was study what he got wrong and just keep retaking it until he passed it. Yeah, so third time it. third time was a charm. Yeah. 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 And this is where we get to meet uh Martin Sheen's character. She he plays uh Brenda's father. And Frank uh, Jr. falls in love with Brenda, wants to marry her, wants to settle down, wants this normal life if he can have it. He watches Martin Sheen and his wife together thinking 
this is his family again. This is what he used to have. It's the bit when they're all sitting around the TV and singing together, which I had to laugh because, I mean, people I really did that. I don't think that was the moment for him. I, I think the moment for him was when when the parents were washing the dishes in the kitchen together and they're both swaying side by side to the music, singing the song together, and they're both just doing their kitchen dishes. Oh, when, that's it, but that's right before they were all watching when they TV, start, right? You're absolutely right, I think, because when they start dancing, it takes you right back to that beginning early movie scene with his father and mother dancing. Yeah, and, and, and I think that, you know, he, he, he wants to come clean. He wants out, that he, he just wants a normal life. Now, a quick funny story. You brought up the fact of, you know, them sitting on the couch, watching the TV and singing along. When I watched this movie just the other night, I watched it with my father and Julie's mom. They both started singing to the TV. Did they know the song? They knew the song. They knew the guy on the TV and they were into it. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. Because I was thinking, who does that? And I'm looking over and on either side of me, they're singing. That's funny. That's funny. What What did you think of his uh, his mealtime prayer? The same speech that his dad gives about the mice. Oh, that was beautiful. Yeah, and she the uh, mouse. The, he turned the butter into cream. Yeah, that uh, the mom. I love the fa- Martin Sheen's. You know his look of what the hell was that? Yeah, yeah. So uh, they're gonna have an engagement party, and Hanratty uh, comes to investigate. He shows up, and this is where, uh, you know, Leo's got to go. Frank Jr. has an escape plan because he always has an exit strategy, and he has two suitcases full of cash, right? I cracked up at that. Yeah. uh, The first one he opens, I'm like, why the fuck is he taking all the money out of it? He's got to go. I mean, Hanniger's right there. Hanratty's right there. Get the fuck out of here. What are you doing? And then he pulls down another fucking suitcase and opens it up. And I'm all, why is he spreading all this money around? He's just, just go, right? It's amazing he didn't get caught. What cracked me up about this scene is, you know, he's, you're right. He was going through a lot of money and a lot of the money fell onto the bed and everything while he's trying to pack it all up. And then as he's climbing through the hotel or through the window and telling Brenda to meet him at the airport to take a cab on this day and blah, blah, blah. And he hands her money to take the cab. And all I'm thinking is there's probably about $500, $600 sitting on the bed of that spilled out of the suitcase. Why is he handing her any money? Yeah, there's that. And then I was also thinking it was kind of silly for Frank Jr. to think that they weren't going to flip Brenda. Of course, the cops were going to follow her. Uh, her dad's a fucking lawyer, for God's sakes, right? One of the classic lines in this, too, is when he's basically spilling his beans and confessing to Brenda about he's not really a doctor. He's not really a lawyer. He's not really a, you know, Lutheran. He's not this, he's not that. And what is her response? You're not Lutheran. I just love how she just sticks to that. Yeah. That's what you got out of that. So yeah, he has to confess and he makes his escape, tells her to meet him at the Miami airport in three days, two days, whatever it was. And when he shows up and she's standing there, he sees that she's being watched by uh, the authorities. Uh, Kind of a heartbreaking scene, you know, because I think he really did want to start a new life. And I think he really wanted to stop doing what he was doing. But the reality of it is it was only going to end one way. Or I I guess it could have ended two ways. He could have either been dead or he's going to jail. One Mm -hmm. of the two. Well, my first two thoughts in this scene is, first of all, I kept thinking, Brenda's not going to support him because her dad is a big prosecutor. He's, what was he, the district attorney? I can't remember exactly what his thing is. But she's not going to go against him again. 
But then the second thing I thought of, you know, because again, it's been a while since I saw this movie and he starts looking around and seeing all the people. I'm thinking, oh no, now paranoia is kicking in. He doesn't trust anybody. It wasn't until I saw the guy on the roof with binoculars that I realized, no, he's absolutely right. I think you've been watching too many Martin Scorsese movies. Did you catch that little <laughs> Forrest Gumpian moment when Hanratty is outside the bedroom? That was a, oh, on purpose. Yeah. That and, was a nod. It, well, was it? Yeah. To have that, uh, was it that money come? Oh, the dollar bill or the hundred dollar bill? The hundred dollar bill. And Float through like a feather like in Gump? Yeah. Oh, nice. Look at Spielberg. Yeah, that was a nod. What a guy. Forrest Gump. What a guy. So uh, Carl seemingly is trapped, uh, doesn't know, you know, he's got to get out of there because everyone's looking for him. Uh, so what does he do? He goes back to his con man ways, gets his old Pan Am uniform out and recruits a bunch of stewardesses brilliant this guy is so smart frank jr did this in real life he actually set up a uh, almost like a contest to pick a bunch of just models to pretend to be stewardesses for photo ops and when he actually escaped with them he took them all over europe for photo ops yeah don't you like that one moment when they all go bustling past him outside because they think they've got frank and it's the kid sitting in the car. Oh, right. The old bait and switch. Yeah. yeah. And he says, I'm supposed to pick up hand ready. <laughs> they have this little game going, uh, hand ready and uh, Frank Jr. It's so adorable. Um, Burn. So Frank gets to leave the country and he ends up in France and hand ready tracks him down. And I, I, I like this scene a lot too because Frank Jr. When Hanratty comes in and he's printing the checks or he's doing whatever he's doing and he's like, "Yeah, we're together on Christmas again," blah blah blah. Hanratty talks to him like he's talking to his friend or he not so much a perp or whatever, and he's telling him the truth. But the Frank Jr. is like, "There's no one out there. I'm gonna run." Blah blah blah, and you know he he thinks about it for a second and then he decides to trust Hanratty. And that there's a bunch of cops out there. And uh, I, when he walks out and no one's there. And the choir is still the singing choir on the still steps. Sing, I'm thinking, oh, look at Hanratty being a fucking double cross. But no, he wasn't. The police were just a little late. That was the one thing throughout the movie that it seemed like Frank could rely on was Hanratty was a straight shooter. He didn't lie. Yeah, for sure. As far as he knew. Yeah, I, I, I can see that. But absolutely. But doubt was cast into our minds at this moment. Right. Doubt was cast into our minds. Spielberg, he specifically tilted the camera to a skewed angle. And when he does this, Hanratty's telling him, I've got one minute to bring you outside. There's no authorities out there. I've got one minute to bring you outside. And so there's a couple of tilted camera shots and you don't know what's true. Maybe he's lying. Maybe he's not. Right. When I first saw it, I thought, He's not lying. But when he got outside and you didn't see any of the police officers and you still have everybody singing, it was like, oh. What did you think, John? When when Hanratty first walked to that factory and had nobody around him and then came in and told that story, I thought, oh, he's making that up. And then the phone call happens, and that phone call is so quick, I'm thinking, he just had another agent or somebody call there real quick so he could fake it. He's basically conning the con man. That was my first thought. And when he comes out and it takes a second, I'm like, oh, yeah, he conned him good. Yeah, but he didn't. No. He told him the truth. And and do you remember what you thought the first time? Uh, I thought that uh, Hanratty pulled a fast one on him. Mm-hmm. I did. 
But Spielberg, that son of a bitch, knows how to tell a story, and he got us all. So, yeah, he goes to prison, and then we're pretty much caught up now with the way the story's been told, and now we're on the airplane, and this is where uh, I love this bit uh, when uh, Frank Jr. says, hey, are you going to eat that eclair? <laughs> and right, he's like, well, I don't want it right now, but I am going to eat it. Right. And he's like, come on, just give me half. <laughs> and so Hanratty d- does what I would totally do. And I can see and you I, doing I, it. And I do it to my kids all the time, especially with like donuts and stuff. I'll just eat the whole thing. And he just you know? shoves it in his mouth. Yeah. Yeah. So good. This is, that was a good, that was a good bit. What'd you think of the, the heartbreak scene of him finding out that his father had died and such kind of a gruesome way. How did he die again? He fell down the stairs at the oh, train right. station and broke his neck. That's right. That's right. Um, the way uh, Leo portrays it, um, it was good. I mean, it's, it's a tough moment, and you buy it, and, um, you know, well done. Well done. And and that kind of fuels Frank to want to get off this plane, and that's what he does. And I'm thinking, where the fuck did he go? You know, because he escapes from the bathroom. And I've been on many planes, and fuck that. I don't know if I could get through that bathroom. I've read two story versions of what really happened. The first story version from Frank Jr., I don't know if it was for the book or real life, stated that, yes, he was able to get the you know the commode kind of unscrewed and everything. He went through the toilet hole, moved the uh, poop area to the side, and, the, and got out through the wheel well. The other story, which I think is more believable, he is very familiar, obviously, with how Pam Am planes are set up and how the planes work, that he got out of the bathroom, went through the kitchenette, and there's in there is like a little elevator that goes down to the luggage area. They say that he actually went into that and went down the luggage area and got out of the plane through that way. But this really did happen. This was one of his escapes. Oh, yeah. Cool, cool, cool. So, yeah, he uh, takes off and goes to his mom's house and he sees that mom's moved on and you know throughout this whole entire movie every time uh frank met with his dad which was also kind of heartbreaking scenes as well right because frank senior knew what he was doing and uh he uh, leo just kind of wanted to pretend everything was normal and apparently this is all made up because after frank in real life ran away he never saw his parents right yeah that's what you guys said. So, I mean, this is all coming from somewhere. And, you know, Walken and uh, Leo play the roles great. And I really bought their uh, their bond and, and their chemistry together. So, you know, he, he throughout this whole thing, he's saying, did you call Ma? Did you call Ma? Trying to get his parents, wanting to his parents to be together. And, you know, he's just like, no, I didn't. And then, you know, he finds out that his dad dies. He goes, sees his mom. And he's he's really taken back because I guess he sees his, what, his uh, half-sister? Yeah. In, in the window. And, you know, he... Why isn't she freaked out? That, that was the same question Julie asked, is why is she not stranger danger going on there? Because she knew it was his brother. She may have seen pictures of him. I don't know, but he's got the long hair and he looks I, all dirty. I, I understand. I understand exactly what everyone is trying to say. But what I'm saying is that she just knew. She just knew the way... Uh, Spielberg directed her. He looked at her and he said, you just know that's your brother and we buy it. Do you know how so, I explained it to Julie? Because it was written that way. It was written that way. Bam! I said, that's quote Don, it was in the script. Now shut the fuck up and continue watching this film. Now I do want to bring up going to the diner scene between, you know, the last time that 
uh, Leo or the Frank Jr. saw his dad, Frank Sr. Um, that's the second scene we talked about earlier where you could see this beam of just pride, how proud, pride and kind of how proud of his son. You could see that he, you know, Sr. was so impressed with his son getting back at the government and, and you know, getting away with it. And he had to keep doing it. He had, you know, he was living almost like vicariously through his son and getting kind of revenge on the government. Is that kind of how you saw it too? No. I saw it as uh, a father who was proud of his son for making his way in the world. And, you know, um, I wouldn't say he was taken back, but like when he gives him the keys to the Cadillac, he's like, you can't give me a Cadillac. And well, that's I, ISR early, early I think this is the second time they, they, he just meets him at the bar at the restaurant and uh, he begs his dad to tell him to stop. Oh, you think he gives him that look in that moment? Yeah, in that moment, because he basically says, Dad, tell me to stop. He says, you can't stop. You have to keep going. And he's like, oh, you know, tell me where you're going next. You're going to Hawaii next? Is that where you're going? Yeah, you just It's leaves. right before the engagement party. Now, I read that this was an improvised scene, that they told Christopher Walken to say whatever he wanted to say. Oh, really? Yep. Yeah. Carl occasionally visits Frank. During one visit, Carl shows him a fraud check from a case he is working on. Frank immediately figures out that the bank teller was involved in the fraud. Impressed, Carl convinces the FBI to allow Frank to serve the remainder of his sentence working for the FBI bank fraud unit. Frank agrees, but soon grows restless of the tedious office work. One weekend, he prepares to fly as an airline pilot again and is intercepted by Carl, who allows him to carry on his act, assuring Frank that no one is chasing him. As Frank returns to work and discusses another fraud case with Carl, the postscript indicates that Frank has lived for 26 years in the Midwest with his wife, with whom he has three sons, remains friends with Carl, and has built a successful living as one of the world's leading experts on bank fraud and forgery. Roll credits. So yeah, we get to the scene where he, you know, he's doing time. Uh, at least he's back in the United States, right? I mean that mm-hmm. that France prison probably was hell because yep. that was nothing about rehabilitation. It was only about punishment. Carl comes to visit him, and you know he, I, I got to go do this thing, and right. he brings him comic books. Which at this point, it almost feels like he's shifted into more of a dad role to me. Maybe, maybe a little bit. But definitely someone who sympathizes for him. There you go. Yeah, he sympathizes for him for sure. He knows, you know, it couldn't have been easy to be this kid, you know, on your own and forging the banks for millions and millions of dollars. But, you know, Hanratty kind of picks up that Frank's really good at this and they could use his help. And, you know. Do you have one of the checks? Can I see it? Yeah. Oh, it's the teller. Yeah, and he just knows, right? And he gives them all this. And I like these scenes uh, when this is all happening. And you can really get the sense of, you know, he went, Frank went from this lavish lifestyle, tons of money, now has a nine to five job, and he's sitting at the desk, and people keep piling uh, paperwork on his desk, this, that, and the other. And then he comes into Carl and he says, What are you doing this weekend? He goes, I'm going to go to Chicago, see my daughter. And he says, You just do nothing. You know, we'll meet back again on Monday. And and the look in uh, Frank Jr.'s eyes or on his face was like he didn't know what he was going to do, right? He didn't know what to do moving forward because he can't do what he used to do anymore. Mm-hmm. You know? and, and I think he might be a little scared what he might choose to do. Right, right. But I, I just dug these, these two moments that uh, Frank has. The first one where... Uh, 
uh, Carl is dumbstruck as as he's listening to, oh, yeah, it's the teller. Yeah, you can tell it's because of the stamp, you know, because they get used every day. And, you know, the, the nines and the sixes, that they wear out faster. And, and Frank, you know, just casually looking at it for 10 seconds, you know, divulges all this, a, a boatload of information. And Carl is just dumbstruck. He, he, he's slack-jawed. Yeah, and then uh, the moment where Carl brings we, his boss in. We'd like you to look at this. What, it's fake. Yeah, did you did you notice through that whole scene Tom Hanks isn't looking at Leo? He's looking at his boss the whole time going, see, yep, I told you. Check this shit out. When I first watched this movie, my first thought when this whole start thing started happening was, oh, now he's figured out a use for him. Now he can actually use him and get some payback for all of the hunting and all that. And now the second time or the third time, whatever, when I'm watching the movie, you know, just the other day, I'm thinking, oh, now he's figured out a way to help Frank Jr. Now he's figured out a way to, you know, help this kid that he doesn't want to see just rot in jail and do nothing with his life. Oh, yeah. I caught that from the first time. You, you know, he, sort of yeah, mm-hmm. he, yeah. Uh, he's yeah. putting his talents to, uh, to, to good work, right? He's good. Using, yeah, he's doing good. It's for the greater good. The greater good. Yeah. So the second one, the, the job interview one, where uh, Carl is staring at his boss the whole time. Right. And then, you know, and he just goes, and it's probably about the eighth or ninth, maybe the 10th thing that he's found on the check, you know, where he's, yeah, it's, it's, yes, yeah, the liker, it's it, that kind of ink. You could get it like at a stationary store. Right, right. And then that look of smugness that Carl has to his boss. One of my favorite scenes happens, you know, near this end when, you know, Frank Jr. is dressed up as a pilot and he's walking to go get on the plane and, and Hanrad, Carl comes up and confronts him and says, I'll see you on Monday. And then also makes the comment before that, nobody's chasing you. Well, he makes that at the end. Um, he, he, he comes up and I, th- I feel like Carl is kind of validating that, you know, we, I get that you feel like this and I get that you're a caged animal, but go go do what you got to do real quick but don't fuck it up right i mean come back and we'll go back to work get this out of your system and we'll move forward he 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 recognizes and he understands that uh frank's going through a hard time right now and he he knows when to back off and i think that's what makes him a good agent you know and the way that it's shot in in that concourse yes uh, in, in that concourse hallway right we we have carl in the background and then it's only Carl, and it's a background of complete white, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so I, I really dug the way that was shot. It yeah. was shot very well. Yeah, and and you're absolutely right, John. He says, you know, we're, no one's chasing you. And then he just walks off, mm-hmm. you know. And then we get to Monday morning, and Hanready cannot stop looking at the fucking clock. And in his gut, he's thinking, fuck, he ran. That son of a bitch, he put... He put his job on the line. He put a bunch of stuff on the line to get uh, Frank out of prison, and he completely fucked him. But no, uh, he's at a table doing some uh, check forgery, and you hear a voice say, mind if I take a look, and it's Frank. And, and it's at that moment you're kind of like, oh, good for him. And they immediately settled into only talking about what this check potentially could be right. uh, having a, a, a history of. Right. Did you catch... At that end scene, when they're looking at that check, 
that you start to kind of build some excitement in Frank Jr.'s voice, that he's excited. This is a new one. This is actually a mystery. You know, this is something we can really get into. Yeah, because he, he was he was kind of, they were bouncing questions off of each other, mm-hmm. you know. And so, yeah, I could I felt like uh, Frank Jr. was going to get into it now and, right. and use his powers for good. Right. right, he was on the edge. He was on the cusp, but now he's on because, the good side. Now he's committed because yeah. they were ping ponging back and forth. One right. of the last things he says is, "Well, first, you know, I'd call the bank, right. and then and then Carl says to see if there's any money in the in that account." He goes, "Exactly." Then from there, you can start choosing. Right, it's just right, like right. ping pong, yeah. bing bing. Yeah. And at and at the same time, our camera is slowly pulling back. Mm-hmm. This is clearly the end of our movie, and we get that little epilogue, you know, telling us what what happened. And I think that my favorite bit of that is uh, Frank and Carl remain friends to this day, you know, remain uh, close friends. So, you know, and that's how we end the movie. Mm -hmm. Now, do you want me to shatter your hopes and dreams of what really happened? No, I don't give a fuck. Professor, do you care? I don't think you're shattering hopes and dreams. Well, apparently the book, when it was originally released, you know, decades ago, had a different ending. And the book was actually out of print by the time the movie was ready to come out. So they re-released the book, but took out the last chapter because they didn't want it to be different than the movie. What really happened was, is Frank Jr. served his sentence and got out of prison and then went to work odd jobs here and there. But he kind of lied on his resume all the time and didn't mention that he had actually been in jail. So he kept getting fired from job after job after job. So he came up with a plan of going to banks and going to big businesses and offering up, I will help you you know, set up your security so you won't get scammed like I scammed people. And his trick was, and it actually was you know, a brilliant business plan, he offered it for free. He says, I will do it. You just recommend me to the next one. And so after a while, that's how he built up his security business into now he gets paid millions of dollars to set up security for different corporations. He did work for the FBI for no pay. Yeah, he did offer up his services for no pay. So you're absolutely correct. That's one of the people he offered it up, but he was never court ordered to do it. Mm -hmm. And he... um, he did eventually uh, pay two and a half million dollars back. Two million of the two and a half million were to uh, companies, and the last five hundred thousand were to uh, individuals that he felt he took advantage of. Hmm. Although Sweden says that he took a lot of money from them and has never paid it back, he claims different. Yeah, well, what are you going to do? His and also uh, Frank Junior's eldest son became an FBI agent. Oh, well, there you go. Now, Professor, you brought up earlier a great story of one of his escapes from prison where he pretended to be an undercover agent inspector inside the prison, and so he got out. There was another story that I read that I thought was interesting. Earlier on, he had been arrested. Uh, I don't know if it was when he was brought back to America or exactly when it was, but he was arrested and they offered him to, you know, get out for, you know, on bail. So he hired a guy named Bail Out Bailey to go ahead and cover his bail so he could get out of prison. He wrote the guy a bad check. Shocker. So that was one of his escapes out of prison. All right. So what do you guys think? Are you guys ready to rate this bitch? Yeah, let's rate this bitch. Hey, uh, Professor, how do we do our ratings? We do our ratings on a one to five scale, a scale of. 
fucks. So a five fuck movie is a movie that is cinematic gold. This is something that you would love to watch again anytime. If a movie has one fuck, this is a movie that is just a dog and it's not worth your fucking time ever again. What's a zero? A zero is somebody owes me two hours of my life back, you motherfucker. Something that we just don't give a fuck about. All right. uh, Who wants to go first? Who put this movie in the helmet? Oh, I think I did. Would you like to go first or would you like us to go first? Oh, I'll go first. Mm. Asps. Very dangerous. You go first. Catch me if you can. Uh, Spielberg, DiCaprio, Hanks, you know, that that combination, uh, pretty powerful. And even back in 2002, uh, you know, Leo is three years removed from Titanic, like we were saying. Uh, Spielberg had just won for Saving Private Ryan, Best Director. You know, uh, Hanks is still on a roll from Philadelphia, uh, Gump, so on and so forth. So, I mean, it, it, it was pretty much magic. Uh, the story was a good story. As far as Steven Spielberg movies go, I this one kind of falls in the mid-range for me. Uh, off the top of my head, I can think of five that I would rather watch. Um, but I still enjoyed it. Uh, it did feel a bit long for me in certain areas, and I, I felt that the bit when he becomes a a lawyer and the Amy Adams and he's going to get married. I felt that that bit dragged on just a little bit. And so, um, you know, still a solid film, uh, for me, uh, catch me if you can gets 2.75 fucks. All right. So catch me if you can. I enjoyed this movie a lot. It's a fun watch. And what I appreciated more about this movie as opposed to the Wolf of Wall Street, is that there is a real sense of remorse and a sense of uh, hope, if you will, by the end of the movie. And this character, uh, Frank, I think that he did. And he showed that he, he, he really settled down and he really made the world a better place because of what he had done. And I really appreciated that in the story arc of him. It was a fun movie to watch. I enjoyed all of the little different uh, iterations that we got to have between him and Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks, very, very good in this role. As always, Tom Hanks is somebody that I enjoy watching because I just buy his character. The music was a lot of fun as well. And I think that Spielberg just shoots a very smart movie. And it is a very enjoyable watch. It's easy for me to think, yeah, I'll definitely want to see this again. I think that this movie is worth 3.75 fucks. 3.75 fucks from the professor. Would you like me to go now? Well, who else is there left? I guess that would be me. Okay. Well, then why do you ask questions to answers you already have? So, catch me if you can. Um, I like the story. Again, movies that are based off of books, based off of true stories, I enjoy them. I enjoy them more when I really don't know the first time I watch them when I don't know what really happened because I I prefer that they stick to the real events because I want to know the people's real life. But this is Steven Spielberg, and he tells a great story in any movie that he does. Um, 
doesn't always get the best actors, doesn't get, you know, always the best, you know, the best stories out there, but he can tell the story better than I think a lot of other people out there. Um, Tom Hanks, amazing acting in this movie, should have won an, an award for his supporting actor in this movie. Christopher Walken, again, one of my favorite actors, is gold in whatever he is. For me, Leonardo did not deliver in this movie. He felt, again, like we were talking earlier, felt like Jack from Titanic. He didn't, you know, the story arc, you know, I could see it going and, you know, another actor, maybe like they wanted originally Johnny Depp or someone else, Dustin Hoffman, maybe could have delivered a little bit more to make me feel more for the character. But Leonardo didn't make me feel for this character. He didn't deliver on that character arc. So in the end, when he's upset over his father, yeah, I feel bad for him, but I don't feel his journey. I don't feel what got him there. And I don't, as Professor, as you said, I don't feel the remorse. I just feel like he's tired and he's done. Um, I would have loved a little bit better of a performance from him. You know, if he had brought in that kind of that Wolf of Wall Street acting and and just emotional deliverance in this movie i think it would have been better so that was one thing that you know i i didn't enjoy so much in the movie i did feel a lot of this movie was slow and could have been told a little bit quicker um so that was another thing that makes it and then the third thing that you know disinterests me in this movie is once you know what happens you really have no desire to see it again. There, you got everything from the first or the second time you see it. There's nothing that you're going to get out of it, I think, new from seeing it a third or fourth time. So for that reason, even though, like I said, it was a, it was a great movie, the, you know, kind of being in that time period, I thought they delivered on that, you know, delivering kind of the, you know, the elements of getting you into that whole family aspect, did a good job. Other than that, I'm not, you know, I wasn't really drawn into this movie, you know, versus other Spielberg movies versus other DiCaprio movies. Um, so for that reason, I'm giving it a 2.75 fucks. All right, there you go. 2.75 from shithead over there. 4.95 from dickhead over there. And wait, what did I give it? This is why I write it down. Oh, look, it comes you to it. 2.75. I know, I was just fucking with it. You gave it 3.75, right? Yes, yes, yeah, he gave yeah. it a 3.75, and we both gave 2.75. Yes. Now comes the time in our podcast where we are going to select our next film. We have our Bronco Helmet full of fan picks, along with some movies from the directors that we have previously chosen, which is Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg, and John Hughes. The Professor picked last time. I think I picked the time before that. So we are going to go ahead and let the comic book guy pick us a winner. We have our next movie is a uh, fan submission. So our movie comes from Jocelyn. Frankie Fourfingers has a diamond the size of a fist. 86 carats. Do you know something that I've done? Jeez, it's flawless. Where? London. London. You know, fish, chips, cup of tea, Mary Poppins, London. What do I know about diamonds? I'm a boxing promoter. I've got a bare knuckle fight, so I want to use the pie key. Special your Concentrate. Ah. Uh, what? You're going to have to repeat that. Special your Concentrate. You what? What is a gun doing in your trousers? Protection. Protection from what? 
the Germans. Drop <laughs> the case and give me the stone. The only man who knew the combination. You just shot. Getting heartburn. Tony, do something terrible. Where is the stone? Heavy. Shut up and sit down, you big bald. So what should I call You can call me Susan if it makes you happy. I don't care if it's Mohammed, Imard, Bruce Lee. You're going down in the fourth round. Whoops. Anything to declare? Yeah. Don't go to England. Uh, the frame furniture and the uh, scarf cushions went uh, matching sack my clothes. Did you understand a single word? What did you say? Our next movie, Guy Ritchie's Snatch. Uh, have you ever seen Snatch? I have not, but I am looking forward to it. What about you? Have you ever seen Snatch? Well, probably a half dozen times. Oh my gosh, so good! I that, I, I love that film. That has a uh, what? Brad Pitt in it? Brad Pitt, Jason Statham, uh, a bunch of guys that you would recognize, and I, I think you'll have fun with it. John, where can they find us? They can find us at Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, iTunes, Podbeam, pretty much any podcasting hosting site, TikTok. They can also always find us at threeguysinaflick.com where, again, I mentioned earlier, we will be posting our show notes there as well as information about the real life versus the book versus the movie. Uh, just give you a little more insight into the behind the scenes of the movie. Uh, some great information there. So, again, that'll be at threeguysinaflick.com. One thing, again, we'd like to promote out there, if you do listen to us on any of these podcasting hosting sites, please go ahead and subscribe. And if you even feel you know adventurous, share us out to a friend so that we can go ahead and build our subscriber base. That would be terrific. All right. Sounds good. I just want to thank everyone for listening to us, especially Zach, Ronnie, and Jill. Uh, tune in next week where we get some Snatch. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that one. All right. So for three guys in a flick, I'm Don. I'm John. And I'm Ken. Thanks for listening. And so now Frank gets sentenced to 12 years in prison. And off he goes to prison. And I, I really like these last few scenes that you're about ready to share with us. Well, I would love to share them if then you share shut the, the fuck, fuck up. up and read it. <sighs> Are you going to read it now? I swear to God, I'm dealing with children of a bunch of people to get rich. But in this one, uh, he's taking he, advantage of a system. Apples are a uh, puller pawn, whatever. I mean, he's taking advantage of something. Don't right? interrupt the dawn. I was wondering. I know. What the fuck? Now I got to start over. Good. You son of a bitch. You always just. The arc was it was a redemption story. He got redemption. Now I don't even want to go. Fucked it up for everyone. 
Everyone, party's over. Professor fucked get, it up for everyone. Get the hell out. Fuck that guy. It had a lot of people in this movie before they were actually big names. You had Jennifer Gardner. You had Amy Adams. You had the the gal from uh, Grey's Anatomy, uh, Ellen Papanamo or something like that. Um, Jennifer yeah, Gardner. What did I just fucking say? What did I fucking say? What was the first one I said? I just want to interrupt. You some motherfucker. All right, you know what? I'm not going. Someone else can go now. All right, so we are looking forward to Guy Ritchie's Snatch. That just sounds wrong, doesn't it? It sounds naughty. It sounds naughty. All right, so we are looking forward to Snatch. And... uh, (laughs) (laughs) That sounds even naughtier. I'm, just hoping, hey, I'm hoping I don't watch the wrong version. Hey, I like Snatch as much as the next guy. All right. Uh, speaking of Snatch. Pretty good. Yeah. All right. Fuck off. Good night.